Hi, and welcome to the first episode of Season 3 of the RCH Kids Health Info Podcast, the podcast for parents about common child health concerns. I'm Dr Anthea Rhodes, paediatrician, and I'll be your host for today. And for this episode, it'll be a little different. Our expert is going to be my fellow co-host, Dr Margie Danchen. Hi, Anne. Welcome, Margie. (laughs) From the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne, this is the Kids Health Info Podcast. Margie has an extensive background and expertise in the area of childhood vaccination and in particular, building confidence in parents around vaccinating their children. So we're extra lucky that she's here at the RCH and able to join us today as our expert. Perhaps before we kick off, you can tell us a little bit about your background and your specialty interest in this area. Yeah, so I'm a general paediatrician here at the hospital, but I also work in the immunisation service at RCH. But my main research area is around building confidence in vaccines and um, improving acceptance so that we can get higher uptake, especially in high risk groups. And I also actually chair a national group called the Collaboration on Social Science and Immunisation, which is really a group of researchers and and, uh, people who work uh, in immunisation practice that really really all work together across the whole lifespan to improve uptake and the better use of vaccines in the population. Because it is a complex thing for people to think about and understand and it's it's part of thinking and human nature to have some of those questions and hesitancy. Well, I mean, if, if nothing else, this pandemic has asked us to pause and to realise that it's not vaccines that save lives, it's vaccination. Yeah. So it's not enough just to have the vaccines. We actually have to use them and use them well and people need to accept them. Interesting. So we'll talk a bit about some of the challenges that we've faced around that to date and particularly why it's important in kids as part of the pandemic. So before we kick off, I think um, it's important for us to remember that things are changing a lot when it comes to COVID. So this particular episode is being recorded on the 4th of August uh, 2021 and things we discussed today are obviously relevant and up to date as of the here and now. But whenever someone's listening to this episode, we'd encourage you to check what the most recent recommendations and guidelines have been through your healthcare provider or the relevant government website to make sure that the information is the most up to date that is available. Maggie, perhaps we could start by talking a bit about COVID in kids and what the picture looks like at the moment when it comes to the actual virus and, and children catching it. Yeah, so 18 months into the pandemic, you know, we're really fortunate that COVID continues to be, in general, a much milder disease in children compared to adults. And so what we mean is they are less likely to be admitted to hospital or to have severe disease or to die. Now, of course, that's been constantly monitored with the new variants of concern, such as the Delta variant, which we're seeing at the moment in Australia and, you know, globally as the dominant variant. So it's constantly being monitored. But still, uh, disease in children is much milder. And in Australia in particular, we've been very fortunate that we've seen, you know, um, much, much less severe disease in kids and fewer cases in kids compared to a lot of other countries like the UK or the US. So some people are worried that with time, this might continue to change. And, you know, things look more concerning for kids probably at the moment when it comes to Delta than perhaps the situation a year ago. So, you know, what's around the corner? Is it going to get worse? 
Well, it's very hard to say. We do know that the Delta variant is a lot more transmissible or infectious. Yep. So what we've seen sort of in, in a lot of the um, school outbreaks here in Victoria and New South Wales and now in Queensland at the moment is that when a child uh, gets the Delta variant, they're very likely to pass it on to almost every member in the household. Now, fortunately, with the public health response, everybody is at home and they are um, isolating. Um, so that is contained. So really, really important important that test, trace, isolate um, response. Yeah. Um, but it's a lot more transmissible and we are seeing a lot more infection in kids. But again, it's still predominantly mild, but that'll be monitored very closely. So that's probably a good point for us to talk about why should we vaccinate kids? So up to date or up to this point, rather, it's primarily been um, an illness that's affected adults. And as we've seen, particularly older adults in our community, it's now moving into kids. What's the role for vaccination when it comes to children and how that's going to help us yeah, to actually come through right. and out of this pandemic? So this is a very, very um, uh, important question at the moment. And as we know, in Australia, like most countries, we've initially adopted um, a high risk approach to which groups in the population get vaccinated first. The next group will be the, the younger people. So generally those people aged between 20 to 39 and probably in two stages. So 30 to 39 um, and then 20 to 29 will be really important to target those groups. And then we come to children and um, they will definitely be prioritised after young people mainly because there's a, a lot of uncertainty about how much um, vaccinating them will actually impact transmission. So when we think about the main reasons to vaccinate kids, there are three main reasons. The first is for direct protection of the children themselves. And as I said before, we do know that they are less likely to get severe disease and to be um, admitted to hospital, but that still does happen. Yeah. Um, there's also um, the multi-system inflammatory disorder called PIMS-TS, yes. um, and that is rare. But still, we know that children can get very sick from that and again be admitted to hospital. But fortunately, it's been very rare. I think in Australia, we've only had about two confirmed cases of that since the start of the pandemic. And then the third um, area of concern is long COVID. Mm -hmm. Now, we know with long COVID in adults, that can happen in about 10 to 30 percent of adults, particularly adults who've had severe disease. We know about 70 percent of them go on to get um, chronic symptoms uh, three months or more after the infection. And that includes things like um, headaches, um, muscle aches, a bit like chronic fatigue syndrome, some neurological symptoms, but it'd be quite debilitating yes. and disabling. Mm. So really important. And then when we come back to kids, we're not sure about long COVID in children and just how common it is. But that's the first reason, direct protection. The second is by vaccinating kids, can we prevent transmission? So will we prevent them uh, uh, infecting older adults, particularly elderly adults, and for them getting very sick? And that's the big question mark. We just don't know how much the vaccines are going to impact transmission to adults and prevent severe disease. And then the third reason is around, of course, if we have kids vaccinated and they're safe and their teachers are vaccinated and safe, we can keep them at school. Yes. 
And I don't think we can underestimate the impact that this pandemic has had on children in terms of um, homeschooling. So, for example, you know, in Victoria, since the start of the pandemic, where we are, there have been 27 weeks where kids have been um, homeschooling and there are 40 weeks in the school year. That's a lot of time for kids to be at home. It is. Victorian children have not had an uninterrupted school term now since um, 2019. That's right. So it's a long time. And, you know, I think we need to be really aware of the mental health and wellbeing impacts separate to the educational impacts, especially in vulnerable children. So I think there are three really strong reasons to vaccinate kids. One of the concerns that has come from some people is with vaccination, people become protected. And so what the pandemic will evolve into, if you like, is a disease or or a pandemic of the unvaccinated. So this is definitely a a conversation and a term and a concept that we're starting to hear a lot as one of the motivations for vaccinating um, everyone that can be and is eligible. One of the concerns then that we had a parent raising a question was, what does that mean for the young children in our community who are not vaccinated and at this stage don't look like they'll be eligible. So those children who sort of under five, under 12 years, will they be more susceptible and more vulnerable if everyone else is vaccinated? So let's just take a listen to this question from Susan. Hi, I'm Susan. I live in Port Melbourne. I have a question. If we immunise everyone except for those under 12, will this create a mutant variant of COVID that targets itself more towards children as the only hosts that are left. Thanks. Yeah, so that's a really good question from Susan. I think we have to just take a little step back because we're a long way off um, vaccinating children under under the age of 12. We still don't have that clinical trial data, so we don't understand how effective or safe the vaccines are in kids under 12. And, you know, we still haven't even started vaccinating the 12 to 15 year old age group. Uh, In terms of whether we're going to drive COVID disease down into the younger kids and there will be, um, we would call it a variant of concern like Delta, um, I don't think that there's any reason to expect that that will happen. It's actually more likely that we will experience variants of concern in countries that have very low vaccine coverage, a lot of low and middle income countries where there's a huge pressure um, on infection and a lot of virus. Those are actually the areas where we're actually more worried we're going to have variants of concern um, being generated. And that, I guess, is exactly what we saw with Delta um, and the way it evolved. That's right. I mean, overseas. Delta came from India. Yeah, yeah in that right. sort of context. And then it's come into our community subsequently and, and reached almost every corner of the globe. Yeah. Okay, so moving on then perhaps from why we might vaccinate kids to the current recommendations. So we've heard a lot in the news in the last couple of weeks about vaccinations for kids, which is why we thought we'd talk about it today. Firstly, we obviously got approval here in Australia through the TGA or the Therapeutic Goods Administration. So our um, body that actually oversee when they're prepared to say something is safe to be used as a medicine in our population. So vaccines for the over 12s have been approved. And then just in the last couple of days, the question of who's eligible and in which age groups has come about and ATAGI have addressed that and told us about some of the um, particular groups of kids 
who they would consider eligible first when it comes to vaccinating. So can you tell us about those? Mm. And and also just to remind everyone that, you know, when the TGA made the recommendation, they are able to look at the data internationally. We know that, for example, in Canada and the US, they have been vaccinating uh, children over the age of 12, between 12 and 15, since around May. Um, And also the UK have just recently made their recommendation. So you're quite right. The TGA um, initially approved the vaccine and then the Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation or TAGI um, provide medical advice and recommendations on how best to use the vaccines. And similar to what the body in the UK called the JCVI has recommended for, for the UK, Australia has recommended that initially in children, we give it to the high risk kids first. And so there's a number of medical conditions that have been listed that are included that make children 12 to 15 eligible first. And that includes um, conditions such as uh, severe asthma. And that's really important. So that's children who are admitted to hospital with asthma, um, underlying certain cardiac conditions, uh, diabetes, obesity, um, some uh, disabilities. Um, So there's a number of conditions. And it's important that, you know, a parent would check with their doctor to see if their child is eligible. And also, of course, all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, children over 12 to 15, um, and also children living in very remote communities are eligible as well. And that's because those children are considered to be more at risk when if of perhaps catching COVID and or getting very sick with COVID. Yeah, so this, uh, if we look at the UK data and what underpinned their recommendations, they looked at all of the numbers of deaths from COVID for children in the UK for the first 12 months of the pandemic. And they found that there were 25 deaths out of 12 million children. Wow. That was between February 2020 to March 2021. And I think it's probably important to stop there for a minute to just recognise that it that is still an incredibly small number. Obviously, every death in a child or anyone, but in a child, is you know a tragic event, and we want to be avoiding all deaths. Oh, absolutely. But just to put that in perspective, that's 25 deaths in children over that time period compared to 130,000 deaths yeah. overall. Yeah. So much, much lower in kids. But what was really clear was two thirds of those deaths were in children with underlying medical conditions. And they particularly were children, interestingly, with um, severe learning difficulties, uh, certain disabilities. Um, uh, and so that's what they've actually listed in the UK as underlying conditions that make kids eligible are slightly different. Australia has has adopted more of a recommendation, a bit like what we used to recommend for children um, for the influenza vaccine who were at high risk, and it includes more of those medical um, conditions that I've just mentioned. And I can hear parents probably thinking, if they're listening to that, Margie, if they've got a child with a very um, severe learning difficulty um, or something similar to that, should they be worried if their, ch- if their child is not eligible for the vaccine? I think if a parent is concerned, they really should go and speak to their doctor to have it clearly explained to them whether their child is at high risk and whether they're eligible because it can be confusing. Yeah. Okay. And so alongside those recommendations, there is the question of um, mums who are breastfeeding or expecting a baby. So obviously among our listeners, we've got some of those people too. So they might be parents, but thinking about number two, or they might have a very young child. And Lucy had a question around this. Hi, my name's Lucy. I'm wondering what the recommendations are um, for breastfeeding mothers 
and if it is recommended to get the vaccination, um, what consideration needs to be given to the currently scheduled vaccinations that our babies are already getting at, you know, six weeks and four months and stuff like that? Does that need to be taken into consideration from a breastfeeding mother? Thanks. Yeah, that's a really good question from Lucy, and we're hearing that a lot um, from parents. Uh, So uh, just recently, ATAGI and the Royal Australian College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists have released a joint statement which recommends the COVID vaccine uh, at any stage in pregnancy, but also for women who are currently breastfeeding or planning pregnancy, and that's really important. Um, so getting back to Lucy's question, it is safe in breastfeeding women, yeah. uh, similar to the other um, vaccines that we sort of currently recommend also in pregnancy, influenza and the whooping cough vaccine. We know from a lot of data that that is safe. Um, and it does, the, if, if the mum has is breastfeeding and has the COVID vaccine, it won't interfere with the infant vaccines given at six weeks or four months, which Lucy was concerned about. So I think we really can reassure um, uh, women who are breastfeeding, that it is safe um, and that they really need that vaccine to protect them and also because the infant can't be vaccinated. Yeah, either. so I've I've recently I'm fully vaccinated and as you know, I've got a young baby and I'm breastfeeding myself. So one of the questions that I've heard um, from other mums around the community is, does it protect the baby at all? Do they get any benefit from the mum breastfeeding and being vaccinated? Vaccinating women in pregnancy generates antibodies that are passed across the placenta to the infant at birth. Um, And that is why maternal vaccination is such a good strategy, not only to protect the mum, but the baby in the first six months of life. So that two for one protection, if you like. Yeah. So important for mum to protect herself and all the benefits, obviously, that come with that and for the community. Uh, And it's not going to interfere with any of the the other vaccines for the baby, but it's not going to protect them directly no. from COVID itself. Okay. So thinking about all these reasons to vaccinate kids and also um, those children that are now eligible, very recently these these changes have rolled out. One of the questions that we've had is around the concept of herd immunity. So um, we've, we've talked a lot about that and the community are hearing about that, this idea that we have to get a certain number of people out there vaccinated before we will see the benefits for all of us to a level that is significant. And perhaps one of the biggest ways we're talking about it and thinking about it is, for example, to stop lockdowns. So we've got to get to a certain number before we can say that's enough protection that maybe we don't need to be doing some of these other things as part of the strategy to stay safe. So if we've only got some kids eligible at the moment, uh, one of the, and none of the children under 12, uh, obviously for the reasons we've talked about, are in the picture yet when it comes to vaccination, one of the questions that we had come through is, you know, will that be enough to make a difference? Do we need to be bothering with it? Well, so just referring to the data that was released from the Doherty Institute, I think we need to maybe move away a little bit from this concept around herd immunity because unfortunately um, COVID is a little bit trickier than that. It's going to be really hard for us to ever get to a point where vaccine coverage is so high that we can just forget about um, other public health measures such as masks and so on. We are going to be living with COVID for a very long period of time. So when we talk about getting 70% or 80% coverage in the adult population, so that's people over the age of 16, what that means is 
is that we still will need to be using public health measures to suppress the virus and transmission in the community, but it will be a lot less. And as we get to 80% or higher, things like snap lockdowns are very unlikely, but not impossible. So I don't think we want to imply that by the time we get to 80% coverage in the adult population, we will be able to forget about all the public health measures and go back to normal. I think, unfortunately, we're going to be living with COVID for quite a long period of time. Um, and, you know, as Jody McVernon said yesterday, I think we'll be having our mask in our uh, bag along with our phone for a long period of time where it's going to become a part of our life and we're going to be using these measures, you know, for quite a long time yet. Yeah, I think we're all perhaps starting to realise that, that it, we're here for the long haul and the idea that we might get through something and go back to, you know, pre-pandemic is becoming less and less of a reality as we sort of start to understand that actually we just have to keep evolving and working out how we move through and with this. But I do think we need to be positive. You know, we will be living with COVID for a long time, for for years to come, but at least we'll be able to step back from that... um, you know, immediate risk of severe disease and people going to hospital um, and or people dying, that risk will lessen much, much more as coverage in the community gets higher um, and people still continue to, you know, follow the public health advice. And hopefully we're starting to see some of the beginnings of that in places overseas. And obviously in Australia, we've got, if you like, some of the benefits of lagging behind and watching some of that unfold and the lessons that we've been able to learn. Yeah, I think we have been fortunate in Australia that we've been able to look at the global situation and take a lot of learnings from countries like Israel um, and also the UK and the US that have high coverage. I think we've got some really good data now to chart a way out of the pandemic safely. Um, and, you know, hopefully that will mean that we've got high two-dose coverage in the Australian community by the end of November, early December, certainly by the end of the year, so that we can start relaxing some of these restrictions. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. (laughs) So moving now perhaps to another focus. So all of this gets back to this idea of vaccination, which is what we're talking about, to have that relative freedom uh, as one of the elements. So there are lots of concerns out there and there's also a lot of information. Some of it's misinformation. Yeah. So what I'd like to do now is talk about some of these concerns that we're hearing and We've got you here. It's such a privilege. You can, you know, just like you sit in your clinic and talk to people, you can talk to us and lots of parents out there can have the benefit of hearing your advice about these common questions. Yeah, absolutely. Perhaps we'll start with um, a concern that's quite specific that a parent has dialed in with who has a child with an autoimmune condition. We hope her child's doing well, obviously, with their underlying health concern. Hi, my name is Sarah. My question is, for children that have autoimmune conditions, with this new mRNA vaccine and little to no studies done on this, how would parents of children with autoimmune conditions that are known to flare up when given vaccines that stimulate the immune system be advised to proceed? Yeah, so that's a really good question from Sarah. And as you said, you know, in our weekly immunisation clinic here at the Royal Children's Hospital, we speak with parents like um, Sarah and her daughter all the time to try and understand what the underlying condition is and what the risk is from vaccination. Now, we do know from other vaccines on the National Immunisation Program schedule that they can um, trigger a flare in autoimmune disease sometimes, and that's not with every child and 
not with every autoimmune condition, but of course that can happen. So what I would say to Sarah is it's really important that she discusses um, her child's condition and her concerns with an immunisation paediatrician. Now, we're fortunate in Australia that we have a network of these specialist immunisation clinics in every state. We actually have two or three in Victoria. We're very fortunate. Um, But you can get a referral from your GP to speak to an immunisation specialist and just to understand exactly what the risk is for your child. But it is important to remember that, of course, the risk of COVID disease um, is substantial. So we need to come back always to what is the risk of the disease, not always just what is the risk of the vaccine. Unfortunately, what we've seen and what we've all become more familiar with in the pandemic is this carefully weighing up the risks and the benefits. And of course, you know, it may be that um, Sarah's child will gain greater benefit from being vaccinated in terms of prevention of severe disease and that in fact the risk of, of triggering her autoimmune condition is very low. But we need to understand her daughter's previous medical history and have that conversation carefully so that um, Sarah feels confident in her decision to vaccinate her child. And I think one of the really important things you've said there, Margie, is that risk assessment is hard. So even as doctors where we think about this all the time, we've sort of been trained in this over the years. Every time we think about a treatment or a medication, we're thinking about risk benefit because nothing is without any risk. We accept a level of risk in our behaviours all the time, um, but then trading them off against benefits. And the trouble or the challenge perhaps with COVID has been that It's not a set and forget and it's moving all the time. And so it's difficult. It's difficult for for, um, people giving the expert advice and even more difficult for those people who are listening and feel like it's changing all the time. Absolutely. I mean, risk communication has probably been one of the biggest challenges for our politicians, public health physicians, medical professionals to help people understand the risk and the benefit of these vaccines. And you're quite right. With the pandemic, I think we could have done a better job in preparing the public and telling them that, unfortunately, the advice is likely to change as the situation in the pandemic changes. So as cases in the community change and the the risk changes, you know, we've seen the ATAGI advice has to be updated depending on what's happening. It has to be responsive policy. It's not set and forget. So that's one element of risk communication. The second is to understand how we interpret risk. And this is really interesting because we actually all use mental shortcuts and it's called, uh, it's got a name, it's called heuristics. Um, And these are actually cognitive biases, biases, how we interpret risk. So what you referred to before in terms of a parent being quite um, afraid or fearful if they hear about a risk, people hear about something scary and they amplify that risk in their mind. And that's actually called something, it's called availability bias. And it's really interesting to understand how we make decisions and how we interpret risk um, because actually if it's explained to a parent, well, that's actually very rare and very uncommon and that risk is framed in such a way that the person can understand it better and then weigh it carefully against the benefit, people understand it a lot more easily. So um, I think that's why we always say, please have this conversation with your doctor, with a trusted healthcare professional, because it's much easier to weigh that risk and benefit in a conversation rather than amplifying the risk in your mind and being so frightened and so fearful that you actually choose to do nothing. Yeah. 
And so one of the risks then that we know about, this might be a good time to talk about that, with the Pfizer vaccine in children and younger adults is the effect it can have on the heart. So a a type of thing called myocarditis. Can you tell us about that and that risk and put it into some context for people listening? That's right. So when we talk about the COVID vaccines for children, we're talking about the Pfizer vaccine or the mRNA vaccines. The AstraZeneca vaccine will not be recommended for children anytime soon. We don't have any clinical trial data of the AstraZeneca vaccine. So the Pfizer vaccine has been shown to have um, a rare but serious side effect in boys, young boys and men in particular. So particularly boys aged between 12 and 24. And interestingly, it's after the second dose of Pfizer vaccine. It causes an inflammation of the heart muscle called myocarditis. Now, unlike the clotting syndrome with the AstraZeneca vaccine, it's actually quite mild and self-limited and and easily treated. Um, A number of these young men have been admitted to hospital, often more as a precaution. Very few have been very, very sick. So we're fortunate that this doesn't look like um, a a very nasty uh, side effect, if you like, but it's obviously being monitored very closely. We're gathering more safety data. um, And that is something that needs to be weighed carefully in terms of the risk of the vaccine against those benefits that I mentioned earlier. I think it's really important for people to understand that these decisions and recommendations that are made by ATAGI um, are made in consultation with global experts and looking at international data. So we're really fortunate here. We can learn from the international experience. We can speak to vaccine safety experts internationally. And that's really helpful for us to determine, um, you know, our recommendations and our decision making. And also it's important for people to realise that whenever we have a vaccine safety signal like this, we always carefully consult the specialist group involved. So for for this adverse event, it's the cardiologists. Yeah, and the heart experts. The heart experts, the heart doctors have been very, very involved, a group in advising ATAGI on um, the myocarditis and all of the recommendations and precautions around it. So it's very carefully, um, there's a consultative process and it's done together, you know, with that expert group and ATAGI. From what I'm hearing, you're saying this condition as we've seen it play out overseas has been rare and mild, so not very serious, and has been self-limited, which means, you know, it's um, gone away effectively on its own and not been a long-term problem. And of course, for any um, uh, young men in particular who have a past history of certain conditions of their heart, if they've had previous inflammation uh, of the heart or rheumatic fever, then they should carefully, um, obviously, discuss that with their doctor. Okay. So moving on to a slightly different concept, but it's related. So you've talked a bit about testing and clinical trials. One of the concerns that parents have is this idea that the vaccine has been developed so quickly, it's been rushed and, you know, maybe processes haven't been as thorough. Maybe it hasn't been tested enough to know that it really is safe enough for our kids and or that it really works well enough to be worth having. That is a very common question because we know that we got these vaccines in around sort of nine months, nine to 12 months, where it normally takes about 10 to 15 years to develop a new vaccine. And, you know, that's huge. If you stop and think about that and people are a bit cautious, they think, oh, how could this possibly be good enough? So... 
it's really important that parents understand the reasons why that was possible. First, there was a huge global investment in terms of resources put yep. into developing these COVID vaccines. Secondly, a lot of the regulatory processes were overcome more quickly because of the urgency and the need of the pandemic. So there was a lot of global collaboration and, and a lot of regulators working closely together. And thirdly, some of the platforms, the vaccine platforms like this mRNA technology, was ready to go. They had 20 years of, of experience um, in developing these vaccines for other needs. And they, if you like, the, the platform was ready to go. The clinical trial development process was still followed. It's just that some of the phases were overlapping rather than done sequentially one after the other. So normally we have three phases in the clinical trial development. There's phase one, which is safety, um, phase two, which is more the immune response, and phase three, which is the um, clinical protection that's generated um, uh, in terms of in the person not getting the disease. Yep. Now, none of those phases were skipped it's just that some of them were overlapping to, to increase, um, you know, how quickly uh, the, the vaccines could be tested. And then all of that safety data, all of that clinical protection data is evaluated very carefully before the vaccine is approved. And then once the vaccine's released in the population, phase four starts, which is almost the most important phase, and that's ongoing vaccine safety surveillance. Mm -hmm. And we are really fortunate in Australia. We have an incredibly robust vaccine safety surveillance system, which I won't describe in great detail, but parents can be very reassured that safety monitoring once these vaccines are released into the community is ongoing. And again, it's responsive. If there are any signals, they're quickly investigated. Um, so, you know, I think people should actually be very reassured that no uh, uh, phases have been skipped, no shortcuts have actually been taken. Yeah. But because of the urgency of the pandemic, um, the whole process has been a lot quicker. So more interest, motivation, more money have all meant that some of these things can be accelerated in a way that we would like to see lots of things accelerated, mm. but and it was unique. That's right. And of course, coming back to your, your other part of that question, which was around safety, mm. you know, we've been fortunate in Australia that we can again learn from um, the global data in terms yeah. of vaccine safety from countries like the US and Canada, you know, Europe, the UK. Um, so, you know, we've now been using these vaccines uh, for, you know, seven, eight months. So there's a lot of data for us to be looking at, not only the data from the clinical trials, but from the data in the population um, in terms of vaccine safety. So any longer term signals would be flagging by now. And we really haven't seen that, which is really uh, reassuring. Okay. So moving on to one of the biggest um, questions out there, and that is the idea that the, particularly the mRNA vaccine, so Pfizer is the one we're using here in Australia that fits into that category. Can they affect a child or even an adult, but we're talking about kids today, can we affect, a, can that affect a child's DNA and also their fertility later, many years later? How can we know that those things won't be changed by giving a child the vaccine? Yeah, so this question around the Pfizer vaccine affecting DNA is one of the most common, if, we, if you like, conspiracy theories or pieces of misinformation that's been spread. It doesn't affect people's DNA. And the reason for that is actually the uh, Pfizer vaccine is made, um, it's, it's actually a little piece of genetic code, but it's not DNA, it's actually RNA. Mm. Um, and it's that little bit of genetic code that is encased in a fat 
bubble, which is called a lipid nanoparticle. And it's that little fat bubble that's actually injected into the muscle and then it moves into the cell. And then the the fat bubble dissolves and the cell reads the little piece of RNA and makes the spike protein. It's so clever. And then the body makes an immune response to that spike protein and the little piece of RNA is destroyed in the cell. Now, what's critical there is that all happens in the area outside the nucleus in the cell. So the RNA doesn't go anywhere near the DNA, which is encased in the nucleus in the cell. So it's actually not physically possible for the RNA to get inserted into the DNA. So that's a long explanation, but I can really reassure parents that there's no way that that little piece of RNA um, in the in the Pfizer vaccine actually is incorporated into anyone's DNA. And I think because these concepts of RNA and DNA are related, that somewhere along the line, this idea has really morphed into this concept that DNA is changed. Yeah, that's right. And um, it's just not true. So I think we need to be very clear about that and try and help people to understand that they don't need to be concerned about that. And what about fertility? Yeah, so that is a really uh, another important question and something that we know worries a lot of people. Uh, there is no evidence that these vaccines affect fertility. Um, and uh, similarly with, you know, the other vaccines that we use, again, when we come back to, you know, maternal immunisation and other adult vaccines, things like the, the influenza vaccine, the whooping cough vaccine, these COVID vaccines are not live vaccines. They're killed or inactivated vaccines. And there's absolutely no evidence to suggest that they affect fertility. Uh, and again, there's some studies now that we have from the US, some of population-based studies where they've looked at this and there's no evidence. So I think we can really reassure women, especially young women, that they don't need to worry about the vaccines affecting fertility. So important to get some facts, Margie, and get to the bottom of some of these things because they're really common. And I guess when things are happening quickly and people are worried, they turn to all sources of information and then that can be enough to sow um, a seed of doubt and fear and then it can create a, a decision-making pathway that means people really want to hold back. Absolutely. And we know that a lot of that misinformation is shared uh, on social media and online and often people can find themselves on, on chat groups or uh, on, on websites where they really get sucked down into this vortex of, of misinformation and a lot of that um, misinformation really thrives on people's fear. So it makes them feel frightened and they don't know what the truth is. They don't know which information to trust. So I would really encourage anyone listening to um, seek out trustworthy, reputable information um, on, on the government websites, um, on through ATAGI advice, which again, as I said earlier, is through careful consultation with experts in whatever specialty area that we're concerned about. So for example, those pregnancy and breastfeeding guidelines were heavily informed by obstetricians, midwives, all people working with you know maternal fetal medicine. So people need to really seek out trustworthy information and try and stay away from those uh, websites that are really just peddling fear. Many parents, I think, will hear all of this. They're listening today and they're thinking, I can see why this is important. I'm, I'm reassured by a lot of what I've heard now and you know, some of my doubts have been addressed. But at the end of the day, nothing's without risk and I still don't feel sure. So you know, maybe I'll just wait. Maybe I'll just hang back. Maybe I'll just opt out. How, how would you respond to that? 
Well, I think at the moment our focus is still for adults to get vaccinated. In fact, the best way that we can protect children at the moment is for adults to come forward and to have their vaccines. Mm -hmm. Don't delay your decision to get vaccinated as long as you're eligible. Mm -hmm. Um, So we know people under the age of 40 at the moment, not everybody can access the vaccine. But if you are eligible and you still have concerns and you have questions, then go and speak to your doctor. Have that conversation because really we're we're in a situation now where everyone needs to come forward and make this decision and hopefully have the vaccine for us to navigate a way out of this pandemic and by adults doing that and getting high coverage in the community they'll be protecting kids and kids really matter we know they matter that's what we're talking about today then of course there's the questions that we've been talking about about vaccinating children starting with high-risk kids the program hasn't opened up to all children over 12 at the moment that will happen in the coming months. And then as we get um, good, robust clinical trial data on safety and how well the vaccines work for children under the age of 12, then we'll start to make those decisions about that age group. So I think, you know, really knowledge is power. Um, There's a lot of information out there, but go to trustworthy, reputable sources. And we know that that's somebody, that's generally a family doctor, the GP that people really trust and want to speak to. Um, So I would encourage parents to go and have those conversations. And lastly, Maggie, a tricky one, and I'm sure you've been asked this by, you know, your friends or family. I get it all the time. People grab you and say, well, what do you think about this vaccine for kids then? Are you going to get your kids vaccinated? Well, as you know, we both have four children. um, And yes, I will absolutely be recommending the vaccine for my kids. And, and, uh, you know, I've got an 18-year-old, so he will be very much making up his own mind. Yes. But for my younger kids, um, I'll be discussing it with them, as I always would any decision. Yes. Um, but I'll be absolutely getting my children vaccinated and protecting them. Yeah. And really important to raise that point there, Margie, that this is a decision to have and um, talk about with your kids. Obviously, it depends on their age That's um, right. and their own level of ability, if you like, around understanding these things and making decisions. But the sort of nothing about us without us concept is here and applies all the time when we're talking about children and young people. So we're talking about how parents might approach this today and a lot of what we've chatted about really is um, directed at the parent, but this is a conversation that absolutely needs to involve your child or young person um, when you get to the point of having that discussion. Absolutely. I mean, we certainly have roundtable discussions in our family. And as you can imagine, they get sick of hearing about vaccines. Um, (laughs) I work in this space a lot. But certainly, um, I always seek to answer their questions. And that's just another point to leave parents with. It's okay to have questions. The key is just to really go and find out the answers to your questions and speak to someone you trust. From a trustworthy source. Absolutely. I think that's a great note to finish on. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Such a privilege to have you here and pick your brain so that everyone listening can really understand how to think about these things, where to get the facts and help them make what are challenging decisions. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if you've enjoyed today's episode, then please jump on and give us a review and share a link for the uh, episode with your friends. We've talked today about some resources, so we'll put those up on the show notes as always. And there'll also be a link to a newsletter, which is a new initiative we've started for the podcast just in the last few weeks. And finally, to those people who called in with questions, thank you. And uh, if you've got more, when we have topics coming up, please don't hesitate to ring in and ask us your questions. We'll do our best to answer them. Thanks for listening.
information provided in this podcast is general in nature and is intended to support, not replace, discussions with your doctor or healthcare professional. If you are concerned about your child, please consult your local healthcare professional for further advice.